Hey, this is Simba Kader, and you're listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Mark Freeman. Mark is a community health advocate turned data engineer. He received his master's from Stanford School of Medicine. He later founded On The Mark Data, where he connects brands with data professionals through his content. On the data and ML front, Mark has worked with numerous startups where he's put machine learning models in production, integrated data analytics into his products, and led migrations to improve data infrastructure. Mark, so great to have you on the podcast today. So excited to be here. Well, I've given a quick intro on you. I'd love to hear in your words how your career has kind of progressed over time. Yeah, I mean, where I'm currently at was not in my direction of where I thought my career was going. So kind of my story starts off where I thought I was going to be a doctor. You know, I studied undergrad, preparing to take all the science classes. And then when I got into grad school, I did my master's in uh, community health and prevention research over at Stanford Med. That program was essentially to get me more prepared for medical school. And then being in there, I realized, oh my gosh, I hate this actually. (laughs) I do not enjoy being in grad school. I mean, I love healthcare. I love learning. But grad school is just not the right environment for me. And imagine four more years of that through medical school, that just wasn't going to work. And so being at Stanford, I had this kind of unique kind of experience where I was exposed to Texas in Silicon Valley, exposed to, to business, exposed to healthcare. And then because my program was very uh, quant focused, I was learning how to code in R and do the statistics. So data science ended up being one of the, like, the top choices from that. I was like, wow, I can still pursue healthcare. I can still focus on trying to solve social problems, but I can scale it up via business and data. And I just became obsessed and it ended up being a blessing in disguise because data ended up being my actual true passion where I just can't stop thinking about it. And so the roles I've kind of been in is I've been a data analyst. I've been a data scientist. I moved on to be a data engineer. And now my next career role that I'm starting soon is going to be DevRel, specific for the data engineering space of like, how can I create content? and community around data engineers and talk about the problems I experienced. So my career has kind of been really varied. I can go really into the specific parts if you're interested. But what I really like about it is that I've kind of touched a lot of parts of the data lifecycle, which has been really fun. I feel like a lot of data engineers come from like either software backgrounds or like true research backgrounds, or maybe they were always data engineers. There's a lot of ways, but it seems from your path, like you're writing, an, you wrote, your first code was an R. So like, you're definitely coming from like that path. Yeah. Tell me about that. Like, I guess, how different is it to be writing R code as like someone who is going to med school or whatever and versus like being a true data scientist? Is it similar? Is it the same? Is it? It's completely different in the sense that when I was writing R code, especially in grad school, academic code is not the best code. My goal is just to get the output for a statistical analysis and make sure like the research design is really good but I'm not thinking about how to write like great code. And so I look back to like my code when I was a data analyst. So when I was a data analyst, I was at Stanford doing clinical research for them. And my code is just a super long script, no functions really that much. It's just like 400 lines of like actions happening to get an output, right? And that ends up getting published, right? Not the code, but the output of it. That is really bad code. If I went into a job and did that, the software engineers would be like, just get out. I'm not merging this into, <laughs> into our, our trunk. So for me, like a big shift was actually going from, all right, this is how I write code in academia to do analysis. This is how I write effective code to help build a product. And so that actually took a few years. The first iteration was actually learning Python. And so one of my first jobs out of grad school wasn't even in data. 
it was in operations because I just didn't have the confidence to get the, the data job I want. But I knew I still want to be a data scientist. So in operations, there's a lot of Excel workflows. I start automating all the workflows in Python. And so I taught myself Python over a course of a couple months, start implementing those. The next stage was actually beginning, becoming a data scientist. And now other people have to read my code. It's not just other people who aren't technical. Other people have to read my code. So now I'm being very intentional about how do I make my code easy to understand? And for data science, it's more so like exploratory and making kind of insights relevant. And so following a certain pattern. So I was still in healthcare when I did data science. And many times, you know, because it's in healthcare, it has to follow like research best practices. And so making that very clear for that. And then for my next data science role, it was for an HR tech company. And that was very product focused. And that's when I really started to learn how to write really effective code because that was one of my goals. I said, I want to learn what ML looks like in production. I want to learn what data science looks like in production. I want to I work with the production code base. So my manager is really, really amazing and made sure I partnered with software engineering a lot. And that's when I actually learned how to code properly because I couldn't merge my code <laughs> until it passed code review. And code review was probably one of the most effective ways to learn how to write really great code, both doing code review and having your code reviewed by people that are much, much more talented than you. So that's when I learned how to do like unit tests, classes, you know, logging, really strong doc strings, how to abstract things, how should I put it within the code base? That really came from thinking about from data science, less from insights to data science as a product itself and how my, how my data processes are going to be used in the product. It's interesting that you had this progression from like at first, the code didn't matter. It was just output. And it sounds like even like an analyst role, that was true. Like you were, hey, you know, you have a Jira ticket or something. It's like, hey, I want, I have this question, answer it. And you're like, I'll go answer it. And then you said as a data scientist, like you started sharing code and collaborating. And then like, you know, you're writing code for other people as well. And you mentioned, you know, like one way that really helped was, was to actually get code reviews. You also talk about production code, how production code is very different from like experimentation code. So I actually really want to break that down. Like, let's first talk about maybe the collaboration and experimentation amongst yeah. data scientists. Like, how does that look like? Like, I know everyone does it differently, but I'm just curious from your experience. Like, if I'm a data scientist or I want to be a data scientist and I am, or I'm a data engineer working with data scientists, how do they collaborate? Like, what's the, you know, are we messaging on Slack? Are we doing meetings? Like, why do we even collaborate? So actually, I want to clarify the question. Are you talking about how data scientists work with stakeholders in general or with other data scientists? Because they're, they're different. So I'm asking about data scientists of other data scientists. I'm also curious about the stakeholder piece. So if you can answer both, that's even better. Yeah, I can answer both. So I think a framework that I created, long story short, for my first data science roles, I just wasn't effective and I made a big mistake. And so from that, I created a framework to make sure I never made that big mistake again. And I call it the TRI framework, which stands for Talk, Requirements, Iterate, Build, and Evangelize. And this process is really going through how can I create effective data projects that drive value? And a big part of this is very low is the coding. It's actually the, the stakeholder management, getting requirements, all those things. So the talk stage is, say, for instance, I have a request from a stakeholder and saying like, hey, we want XYZ insight. Well, the kind of analogy I give is that most of these non-data people don't know what to ask for. <laughs> it's so abstract to them. And the way I describe that is like, if I ask you to tell me about one row in an Excel sheet, that's really easy. If I ask you to tell me about a million rows in a sheet, all of a sudden your mind just blows. And you're just like, how, how do I even manage that, right? And that's what our stakeholders are experiencing through that when they ask us questions. 
And so our job as a data professional is to help guide our stakeholders to better questions. So I'll get a request and I'll push back. I'm like, why are you interested in this question? What business value is this driving? Is this a new feature coming out? Like why, why is this metric more important? Then from there, I can try to assess like what's the scoping of trying to solve such a one's case to answer or create a, a data product or something along those lines is what would this require? More importantly is what data assets exist and where those data assets, what's the level of quality for those data assets? Do I trust this data? Do I need to validate and work with software engineering to understand like, hey, this is how you generate this data in these logs. This is how it goes through our system. This is how it hits our data warehouse. Can I trust this? In addition, I'm going to the business stakeholders to understand what's the business logic you believe for that, right? So there's a lot of upfront work before I even code and start with the data. From there, this is where the data scientists start coming in when I do the scoping. It's like, all right, if I'm doing some statistical analysis, what is the best approach to do this? So I might do some exploratory analysis to understand the distribution of the data. And then from there, I'll go talk to my team like, hey, this is the approach. I'm thinking about doing this type of model. I'm thinking about doing this type of analysis. I want to think about this type of population. So I'll filter these things out and create that process and initial code for that after approved, kind of like this is the direction we want. This is when like other data scientists become really, really helpful in that workflow is that I need to talk to them, see what am I missing? What other approaches am I doing? Because you can get to an answer in multiple ways. <laughs> And there's pros and cons of different ones. So you may do a different statistical analysis. You may have a different assumption. And so when I'm working with data scientists, my goal is to, these are my assumptions. Would you make different assumptions? And if so, how would you approach this? And that's really key. And I think you can't have like an ego going into this because, and that's part of your managers as well to like create a space where you have that psychological safety to be like, I'm okay to be wrong. Whereas a team want to get right. What's the best approach? And then once you get that analysis, you get that done, you're, you're pretty happy with it. Then you go back to your stakeholders and show the results. And one of the biggest mistakes I think a lot of technical people do is that here are the results, here's the data. <laughs> and they think it's self-apparent. It's not to them. You have to really massage and think through how do you communicate these results. And for the tribe framework, so I talked about the build as the last step, the evangelize step, is I try to answer three things. What was your pain point? How did I solve your pain point with this? And then how can you use it today, whether it's a product feature or insights? And if I answer those three questions to the, the key stakeholders, it's an instant win. It's such a good point. I noticed the big difference between junior people, especially junior data scientists and more senior data scientists. It's junior data scientists will give you the facts and they're like, okay, it's your job to form an opinion. And more senior people understand that, hey, here are the facts. Here's how I read this. Here's my opinion. And so there's a balance, right? Because you don't want to be like, it's this, you know, like we need to do this thing. Because you might, I mean, the data is never, it's very rare that you will find real causation. Yeah. It's almost always correlation. The, the statistical phrase is uh, all models are wrong, but some are really useful. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. always fall back to. <laughs> yeah. So... I think it's such a, I mean, I feel this even with designers and lawyers, like more senior lawyers, they'll be like, hey, like, this is what you're going to want to do. More junior lawyers, they'll ask me like, oh, like, should we include this language or not? And I'm like, I don't know. That's your job. <laughs> and it's like true of designers too, or it's like, should it look like this or this? And I'm like, I don't know. This, I want it to look good and get this across. And, you know, it's your job to like, so I can see it 
from the opposite ends. Because there, I'm like pretty much the, the dumb stakeholder, right? Like, I don't know anything about design, just like it should look good. And so yeah. I think uh, as data scientists, it's truly important to remember, one, how much like ownership you actually have. Mm-hmm. Like people just want an answer and chances are you're going to be able to come up with a stronger opinion. Someone who is a trained data scientist than your stakeholder who is very good at their respective function, but you know, isn't living data like you do. Definitely. And, and one key thing I want to highlight is if I'm asking those clarifying questions at the end, that means I failed because I'm not meeting your needs. I'm not aware of your needs. That's why I spend so much time up front doing that scoping and discovery and talking to my stakeholders. Because there's two things. One, I deeply understand their problem. I can kind of deliver on that. But two, it builds trust where they feel as if Mark got me. I know he's going to look out after our problem, make sure he delivers because he's been so thorough up front. And that trust component is really big. So when you do give your numbers, they're more likely to trust it. Or you do give your results, they're more likely to trust it. And because you've done that upfront questions, you can actually say like, hey, this is another consideration. Like as our project evolved, I remember saying these are these key metrics. You didn't ask for this, but like here's this also addition like perspective, right? And so you can start foreseeing other questions they'll have as well with that. And so that's why I spend so much time on the collaborative communication piece upfront, more than you think you need to. And you'll be set up for success and when you communicate it down the line. I know you've, we've talked deeply through your mental framework on it. Are there tooling or is there, does, does this even fit in data ops? Is this a whole nother thing? <laughs> like, how do we think about, yeah, this tooling in relation to all these workflow problems? Definitely. So, you know, I think what, what I was describing is very tactical is on the data science side and on the data ops side, and, and for, for context, my introduction to data ops through, through data engineering, and I, again, I want to highlight, I'm not a data ops expert. I see the value of it. And so I've started creating content around it to like interview these experts in this space. But from what I've seen is for data engineering and to be successful, to trust the numbers is like, as a data scientist, how can I have the data to do what I do? And that's actually how I got into data engineering. My last role, the data was not up to par and I couldn't do my job. And so as a data scientist, I just said, hey, I know how to code in Python. I'm one of the best coders on our team for that. Like, I'm just going to dive in and fix this. Go upstream and actually resolve this, fix our data warehouse, fix our ETL pipelines. And that's how I kind of got into data engineering in, in a way for that. So that's how I got into data engineering. And then from there, I just realized how reactive data engineering is. Because when data goes down, I can't do my job. And if I can't do my job as a data scientist, I can't work my stakeholders. And if my data is bad quality or there's a hidden error, either they don't trust the data or a fire happens from my results because they were wrong. And so where I think tooling comes in for the data ops side is helping data teams become less reactive, being aware of the risk and opportunities of their data assets and being able to move accordingly, whether it's their data roadmap, their product roadmap, or just their individual projects. And so I think the tooling really for that process I was talking about, that collaboration piece, I don't think there's really much tooling for that. That's this more kind of personal business experience that I've like put into a framework for myself. Maybe Jira <laughs> might be something, but I don't think it really solves that. But the reason why I'm going through all of that is to account for the fact that data is hard to understand, data is really abstract, and data has an affinity for entropy. It's going to go towards chaos at all times. And so data ops comes in a way to create frameworks and guardrails 
to protect and understand your data and help you be less reactive. We've talked about data scientist stakeholder collaboration. We've talked about data scientist, data scientist collaboration. We're starting to kind of touch on the data edge part. How did data scientists and data engineers work together? So that's that's an interesting component because for a while I was a data scientist masquerading as a data engineer before I got the actual data engineer title. So I was like, how do I work with myself? But within that time, I shifted from I'm a data scientist on the data science team to I'm a data engineer on the data science team. And so my focus, my stakeholders shifted from business stakeholders of like, what insights do you want to my stakeholders were data scientists and saying, what are your stakeholders asking you? What is possible for you? What is impossible for you right now? And more importantly, what's extremely hard for you? And you have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops to, to, to handle. And so now my collaboration went into like, how can I empower the data science team to be more impactful? And one of the hidden challenges of that is that as a data scientist, I'm very front and forward in the company. It's easy for me to show success in the company because it's very visible. When you move to data engineering, you're kind of in the background supporting the other people who are shining. And so how do you show your impact in the company on a broader scale? It's much harder on the data engineering side. And so that's where the collaboration data scientist works happens is that you really talk about how do we empower these downstream data consumers, whether it's bringing new data assets through a pipeline, whether it's restructuring the data warehouse to make it easier for them to understand things, right? And getting those use cases from them saying, hey, this is what I did after you implemented this new data feature or you implemented this new pipeline, right? I was able to answer these questions for the stakeholders. So that's where that collaboration with other data scientists comes into is it moves from creating the insights to empowering people to create insights. Got it. So it's almost like the data engineers, stakeholders, the data scientists, and data analysts. And, yeah. And those stakeholders, I mean, it depends. It could be marketing, it could be product, it could be finance, it could be a lot of people. Definitely. And definitely. And so something I did early on too is to like, foresee what the data science would do, I would go throughout the organization and start to talk to business stakeholders, be like, hey, what questions are you trying to answer? Like, what's really like hard for you to figure out your next steps on? And like, what data are you currently referencing to, to make those decisions? And they'll either say they don't have any data or they're like, I use this from these three different sources and it's really hard. That was like, bingo. I know I can take these three different data silos and bring them together within the data warehouse and that'll provide ultimate value to my to my data science stakeholders to answer those questions for the leaders. And so I try to bridge those gaps as many as possible. It's like identifying where are the data silos and bringing them into a place where they're all in one place for data scientists, data analysts to analyze. And some teams I talk to, data scientists do very little, like they don't write Spark code. They don't write, you know, they're really truly working off of the nice, clean, final data sets. In other places, it's like, oh, I'm writing like Flink jobs in Java, you know, and, you know, there's everything in between. The right way depends on the company. It depends on, on a lot of things. But if you had to prescribe like a default, like should data scientists be building these tables? How, you know, should data engineers always be doing it? Where is the line? I think that's a good question. And the reason being, because it's a really hard question that I think everyone, even myself, is confused on. And the reason I say that is that it's not really dependent on the title. It's really dependent on the company and more specifically, the data maturity of the company. So if you're a really data mature company, right? So like, say, for instance, they're a company that uses like feature form, right? And has feature store, right? Are you, they're more on the mature side of things for that. So that probably makes sense that they have data engineers and stuff like that. 
But if you're like at an early stage startup, like I was at, where the data scientist became the data engineer, right? The data scientists are going to be doing a lot more because you have less people and less resources and your focus is proof of value and that these data, data intense applications are worth the business's value to invest in as compared to a more mature company where they see the ROI already and they can say, if we invest in this, we can see this revenue in return. So I think it really comes down to one, what's the data maturity? And data maturity doesn't mean size of the company. You can have a really large company and not be data mature. But the data maturity of the company, how bought in is the company into data and how it drives revenue, especially now in this different market. And then from there, you'll get a really good sense of like, what's the expectations? Well, you see this more specialized where data scientists are able to focus on generating insights, creating models, and doing this more R&D aspect of it. Or if they're very early, being very experienced and generalizable where they can do kind of the software engineering, they can do the data science stuff. And so I've worked in companies where I was using Spark, right? And there were a small startup. I've worked in other companies where it was super small data and we're just using SQL. And so it's so company dependent. I guess similarly on the, maybe moving in a bit to the infrastructure side, a few questions. One, you know, at some companies I talk to, data engineers, they own the cluster. Like they own the Spark cluster, they own the whatever, Snowflake. It's like theirs. In other companies, it's IT and then, you know, they use it. In some companies, I found there's a lot of different infrastructure. Like I said, we have 20 Spark clusters. And in other companies, it's like Snowflake, everything. Like everything's in Snowflake. Like literally, our models are running in Snowflake. That sounds very expensive. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, some people, you know, so there's, there is value in simplicity too. It's always there's a trade off. I guess, where do you think the world's going? Like, is it going to be, is everyone just going to be on Snowflake? Is there going to be more of a diversification of data infrastructure? Like, I'll have a vector database and a graph database. And are you going to have 20 Spark clusters? Or are you going to have this one giant one? Like, where are things moving, in your opinion, around the infrastructure? So two people I really look up to in the data engineering, data, data ops, data infrastructure space is this Joe Reyes over Fundamentals of Data Engineering book with Matt Mousley. And then hopefully I say his name right, Ron, Juan Sequeda. And the main theme they've been talking about for 2023, so I don't want to say it's my theme, it's their theme that I'm just like, you're right, is show me the money. Where they're saying, you know, the future is whatever drives revenue for the business. And I think the past five, 10 years, we've kind of seen like this loose data data workflows where we're like, we're just going to throw money at this problem. <laughs> and that's how you end up with these very expensive like ELT pipelines going to a data lake that we think we can use data for and we have all these complicated things on top of it and just throwing money and cloud resources at it. People are going to be more critical of it because capital is much more expensive now. And so now I think where the direction is going is, is I think it comes back to like a kind of like a build versus buy and where the cost towards that is your infrastructure is going to reflect what drives value for the business. Not what's the best practices that everyone's doing because like all these companies have this modern data stack infrastructure, so we're going to do it. I think people are going to be more critical of like how we're using our money, how we're optimizing for it. What's our competitive advantage? So therefore we build that. And then what is something that is necessary, but not our competitive advantage. So we're going to buy that. And I think that's really going to be determining the, the direction for, for that infrastructure. And so another person I talked to is Ethan Aaron who is a uh, CEO of Portable. He's really cool to talk to because his background's in mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> and so actually he was talking exactly about this. And what he was saying is actually, 
it's less of this conglomerate, like these, these platforms can come together. But instead, he was arguing that essentially it's like there's going to be less R&D and innovation. So people are doing the more boring choices <laughs> because it's safer to drive revenue. And so that's to be something to be aware of for when you're bringing these things together. And so I think there's going to be more data tools, but people are going to be way more selective of choosing what data tools to do. And I think the big thing to look out for is which data companies are going to move from point solutions to actually being a platform to integrate all these tools together. And that's why I'd be paying attention to. What do you think is going to happen there? Do you think that there's going to be more platformification or do you think there's going to be more, I guess, unbundling in, in the data ops space? Oh, and specifically in the data ops space. That's one, that one's a really hard question for that. Because I think data ops has been around for much longer. They've been talking about it for a while, but it's just now it's getting attention. <laughs> so I, I feel like the past five years, very focused like ML ops, ML, right? And I think people are really starting to pay attention now. Like, oh, wow, we spent all this money on ML and actually our data is bad. And that's the reason why our ML is just not working. And so now there's a huge attention. So I actually, I think there's going to be a lot of data ops and data tools kind of proliferating right now. And so I always go back to Matt Turk's MAD diagram, where he shows the, the, the state of data in ML. And every year it gets larger and larger. And I think data ops is going to contribute to that. So I don't see like this bundling really happening. It's still way too early to say. But from what I've seen is that there's so much pain in the market in dealing with this. And when there's a lot of pain, people think there's a lot of opportunity to, to build things around that. And so that's why you see all these like data observability, data lineage, orchestration, all these tools popping up, open source, closed source. And it's still, I feel like there's a new data tool every single day. So I think it's still going to ramp up. Quote I heard recently, which has been like, has really stuck with me, is at a sufficient scale, everything is a logistics problem. <laughs> and I think that really applies to data. Like in the end, it's less about like, how do we move bits and how do we run you know, these functions? And it becomes much more about how do we manage these assets? How do we use our like, our people and, and, and how do we make them productive and how do we, it just becomes way more about managing assets and teams than it does data. Like it's almost like, a, oh yeah, that's just what we happen to be doing. Is that fair? Like, do you feel like the data ops tools are? I think I would make an adjustment to that is that I think there's going to be a hyper focus now on, on the data and the assets you have and it's moving less away from being data, just being some resource they use to power your business to now data itself is a product. And you need to treat it as such and you need to elevate it as such. And so for with that is hence why there's tools coming into place to keep track of your products. Because if it's just a resource, you're not going to care as much. You're like, all right, we have these tools. But now like this data and this specific data asset is tied to this revenue stream, right? Especially if it's like a successful ML model, right? Where it's like a recommender system, something that's like driving sales. That data becomes very important. And you're going to want to create tools to monitor that data. Because there's some companies where they can track for like, if this model's down or this data's wrong, it impacts this much revenue every single day, right? That's a big deal to companies. So I think that's where we're tooling and especially in data ops comes into play. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. One of my really good friends is a PM for data. And mm -hmm. he laughs when he has to describe what that means. He's like, yeah, I'm a product manager and my product is data. I see it and I agree with it, but maybe for our listeners, like what's, what does it mean to treat data as a product and not as an asset? That's a great, great question. I think the biggest thing is that like when you have a product versus like a resource, like there are expectations of that product 
they'll be in a certain way at a certain time and that there's thresholds that you care about. In addition, there's metrics you care about. And so if you're just pumping data into like a data lake and you're like, this data exists, right? You're not paying attention to it. But if it's actually driving a product and there's like, all right, this data quality went down by this much. Upstream, they changed the way they format it and this impacts this thing here. Our refresh rate, is it meeting our needs of our downstream users, right? Then you start asking really critical questions of what does this data need to have for it to meet a threshold of success for this revenue stream, for this product. And I think that's where thinking of data as a product changes because then all of a sudden you start caring about what's coming in, how fresh is it, how realistic is it to the business, right? What things happen to it along the way. And there's a whole list of things, but I think it really changes the, the emphasis from this is something we use versus this is something that's driving value and need to pay attention to. Maybe taking it in a, in a, in a different place now, you know, we've talked a lot about your data science role and your data end role. Nowadays, I know, you know you've been putting on amazing content on LinkedIn. If our listeners aren't already following Mark, you should be. And you have a great newsletter called uh, the Scaling, Scaling Data Ops. Firstly, what prompted the move? Why did you start writing content? Why did you start creating a newsletter? There's twofold. There's one, there's an interest and, and curiosity. And then there's also like a selfish reason. So I'll start with the selfish reason is I talked to a career coach and I was like, if you, he was saying, if you want to elevate your career, you need to start talking to leaders more to learn from them. So I was like, how do I talk to leaders? How do I message people on LinkedIn and like they, they want to talk to me? Well, if I have a newsletter and create a platform to highlight them, they're more willing to talk to me. So that's why I created <laughs> the newsletter for like a selfish reason. But then the second question is like, I could have chose any topic. So why did I choose data ops, right? And the reason being is that from my experience of the last startup I was at, I just saw the pain of having bad data, having bad data processes and how it slowed down product and how it slowed down insights and made it really hard to trust things. In addition, I was seeing this big move recently with Andrew Ng with his data-centric AI, where he was really talking about like, you know, the focus is improving the ML models. I mean, we have these large language models now, like that these large tech companies who have the money to throw in the power for that. There's no competitive advantage for, for that aspect if you're a small company, right? But where you can have a really big competitive advantage is having really strong data to put into these models. And I think that's where a lot of companies can differentiate at is how can you curate very valuable data that's something that other people just don't have. And that's what really got me interested in data engineering and moved from data science to data engineering. But more importantly is like, how do you create amazing curated data sets and ensure that they stay that way and data ops just seemed like the thing that kept on popping up. And the more I read about it, I'm like, this just makes sense in the data infrastructure space. I want to really devote my time to here. Yeah, well, you talked about models. The way I've been putting it when people ask is the models have continued to become more and more commoditized. They've become way better, but they've also become way more generic. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying, like we're moving from doing things for the sake of doing things like, oh, I'm going to like tune this model and get, you know, a point something percent performance boost. And like, I can say I did that. And more like, hey, actually we care about, you know, what does it actually mean? I mean, it could just be revenue. Like how much money is this affecting or something else? You have a mm-hmm. metric. And turns out, in my experience, most of our actual gains that mattered came from feature engineering mm-hmm. and coming up with better signal, like seriously taking data and pulling signal out of it. And I found that as data scientists, a lot of our job has become taking our domain knowledge, 
and, and learning it from this from the company too, and taking the raw data and essentially crossing those into Signal. And so yeah. our job is just is essentially injecting domain knowledge from the business into the data. And the models just they just work. They just take that and they just you know perform magic. <laughs> Definitely. I would love if you're okay with me, you, me turning tables a little bit, asking you a question. Um, so I can learn a little bit more is like, again, you're really focused on, on feature stores, right? How do you feel data engineering best integrates with those feature stores, given that you're talking about how feature engineering is the biggest driver? And I agree with you because like curated data is doing that. Based on my answer, what do you think I'm missing from like the feature store perspective? I think. There's the question that we I actually asked you first, which was like the where's the data scientist split with the data engineer? Like where is that? And the answer that we found in practice is it, like you said, depends entirely on the business. And depends on the company, depends on the team they've built, and literally like who they hired first might completely affect that split. And so feature engineering starts as early as picking the data, finding it, cleaning it up, like just the kind of stuff that looks more like what data engineers do. Then there's a the feature engineering side, which is things like scaling, like doing just things that would seem very random to a data engineer. I think data engineers, the way they think, they build metrics. With metrics, there's usually a source of truth. And typically metrics, they are used in a format that looks like a spreadsheet or a slide deck or a chart or a, a BI tool of some kind. Like that's kind of where it's fitting into. For machine learning, we're fitting into models. So we might do these weird transformations where it's like, hey, cut, you know, let's say I'm making an MRR, like a monthly recurring revenue feature. And for this model, I want to cut any contracts where, you know, the price is less than $1,000 a month. And I only want to do the ones in the US. And I want to remove anyone that's two certain deviations away from the mean. Like you would start doing all this stuff that you would just say that the data engineer, you would never build that table. And if a data scientist sent you, hey, can you build this for me? You'd look at them like they were insane. So the cleaning part and the imputation and like some of the more basics, it's just like finding the data, joining it together. That it depends on the company, whether the data engineer, data scientist does it. But the last mile for sure is done by the data scientist. Almost always. It would be very strange otherwise. And the problems that we see at my last company, we had a Google Doc that was kind of like the the master list of SQL snippets that were really useful. And I know a <laughs> lot of companies... That, yeah, a lot of companies do. Like they have like notebooks and they have like this giant... I met a guy who was a quant and he told me that from the day he joined the company to the day he left, all of his work was done on a single notebook. So he had this massive notebook. And so everything that he's ever done is there. So he can like copy and paste it and reference it. And we just come up with all these tricks, like, you know, like we call our notebooks, like, you know, present or whatever, like experiment underscore V6, you know, underscore final. And I think the problem that we see is much more about the versioning, orchestration, and a lot of it's organizational problems. It's people problems. It's just like, how do we work together well? How do we share things? How do I even keep track of what I did? In my opinion, it's much less about the spark problems. Like, oh, I don't, you know, like, you know, you said it with data ops too. Like a lot of the problems come from treating data as a product and not so much of like, how do I like run this unique computation or how do I handle this much data? Like that's kind of a, it's not a solved problem, but it's not why you need data ops. And I think in ML ops, it's the same thing. Now you're treating features 
as a product, where before a feature was entirely a mapping in the data scientist's brain, right? Like where in any company that has features, do you actually write the word feature? Like maybe in the table name, but like truly it doesn't exist as a concept. It's entirely a made up abstraction in data scientist's head. And so FeatureForm's whole goal is like, hey, let's build these abstractions, make these kind of first class entities in the data science and ML workflow, and essentially build a workflow on top of that. So anyway, I, I digress. So I yeah, no, that, that was really good. One of the points I really like, like you brought up, and I think really goes back to like the the data engineer, data science kind of kind of component. Also, how it ties to data ops is that last mile problem, where that's where data scientists excel. And so when I shift to data engineering, I'm not giving those questions anymore. So I had to go to data scientists, like what are those last mile problems working on? And my goal wasn't to create like the perfect data set for the end of that. My goal is to create a perfect data set to give them the room to explore what that last mile should look like. And so, again, going back to like data ops tooling, a big piece that's like really is like data lineage. Where was this data source? How did it get here? What were the various transformations it had on there? Not knowing how that data came to be in the data warehouse where most data scientists are working at, that can be very dangerous because the, well, there's some transformations or assumptions that are so upstream they just weren't aware of. And that just totally messes things up. And so tying it all together, data engineers, while well, I'm synthesizing from a conversation, data engineers really preparing those data assets that can enable data scientists to create those last mile components. And data ops tooling is kind of like the guardrails and framework to understand how that data works from end to end. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think of it. I, I think that that's the piece. I think that's kind of the answer. And like that's the answer and the, how that actually looks depends on your company. And like you said, like as nice as that sounds, like sometimes as a data scientist, you do have to go and it's sometimes for good reason. It's like you have something that's so random, like seemingly random of a computation. You have to get way back to like the original like stream. Like it's like we have to go that far back before it's like untouched enough. I can actually do the you know thing I want to do. And uh, like, let's say you want to like figure out, hey, what's the average time between events per user? It's like that might require you to go pretty far back down the chain. Like it's like all the cleaned up stuff has probably scrubbed that signal. And as a data scientist doing ML in particular, you're far more likely to find yourself building, let's call it weird features from a data science perspective. So, you know, I guess you, you, like you said, you, with your newsletter, a lot of the focus has been learning from leaders. You flipped it on me. You got to learn also my take on things. What are some of the, if you had to pick, maybe a couple points or three points of things that you've learned from, from these data leaders you've talked to that you have instilled in how you do data science and data engineering. What are the main takeaways you're finding? Yeah, so I think a hidden gem on my newsletter that I know, because I can see the numbers of what people view, is my first interview for the newsletter with Christopher Burr, who is the CEO of Data Kitchen, which is a data ops platform. Very few people have seen it because he was like one, he was like one of the first people on there. So it didn't go out to many people, right? It's a hidden gem because he talks about his process of why he pursued data ops. What's the value to data engineers? Why should companies care? And in addition, I have like a whole bunch of resources as well. Kind of like the first kind of like articles talking about data ops and what was the problem that came about. And so one of my biggest takeaways was Chris Berg said, I'm here to help data folks say ew. When they see data that is nasty, rather than it being hidden and, and causing problems unbeknownst to you, 
you being able to see it and say, that is a problem. We should not be this reactive. We should not be this stressed. How can we go upstream to solve this? And that's really stuck with me. And so when I asked him, what would be your first steps at implementing data ops within a company? Because one of the challenges of getting data infrastructure buy-in, especially on the data engineering side, is that it's an investment for our future selves. And when you're in a startup, your future self seems so far far away. You just want to focus on building features, right? And so product features. We can talk about different types of features, product features. <laughs> and so how do you get the buy-in to actually invest in healthier, more stable data when it, it, it's not an immediate payout, right? And that goes back to our, our earlier conversation where sticking thermometers into the different areas of your data lifecycle and actually measuring what is going right, what is going wrong, that will fundamentally change how you think about your data. And I think it, it, he, he really made the argument that's like how you start shifting towards actually caring about the metrics of your data. Because then you can quantify and understand where in the data lifecycle is really struggling. And more importantly, is what you can do to fix it. And so that's really stuck with me. It's like asking, <laughs> are you just measuring what's there? And more importantly is, how do you get buy-in from leadership to care about measuring? It's something that, it's a trade-off I constantly have to think about of like paying down the debt and then also like continuing moving forward. And I think ev- everyone who, I mean, even if you're IC, like everyone's like kind of has this trade-off to make. And, you know, in our heads, we like to make it seem like it's really obvious. Like, oh yeah, you just pay down the debt and, or, you know, whatever. But in reality, it's really hard. Um, it's a really, really hard, how do you like resource manage um, is, is a really hard problem. I feel like we could keep going for so much longer. I love their chat, Mark. Thanks again for hopping on. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. And thanks for allowing me to ask questions from you as well so I can learn and hopefully your audience can learn because uh, you have so much to provide and I always love talking to you. Thanks so much, Mark.